In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is Psychological First Aid by George S. Everly Jr. and Jim, Jer, Jeffrey M. Lating. It's the John Johns Hopkins Guide to Psychological First Aid by George S. Everly Jr. and Jeffrey M. Lating. Um, as a psychologist, I thought it would be good to read this just for myself. I haven't seen a book quite... With that title, Psychological First Aid, and was released last year, so likely has up-to-date types of information and techniques. So looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is Seven Games by Oliver Roeder. Seven Games, A Human History. And so, uh, as the title of the book implies, this book goes through seven different games that are um, popular and have been popular at least for several decades at the minimum, sometimes several hundreds of years, um, looking at the history, uh, the kind of how the game was developed, but then also looking at some of the best players and then how um, AI and different technologies have come about to try to understand or solve the game. Solve the game means basically figuring out how to play it perfectly and looking at those, um, the interactions of how those things came about, but also the sometimes very interesting uh, stories of when the machines played against humans. And as he does explain, of course, uh, we do say a machine versus humans, but it's humans also making the machines. So in a way, it's also a human versus human type of interaction as well. So the seven games he covers in this book are uh, checkers, chess, backgammon, poker, bridge, scrabble, and go. Um, and I'll, I'll touch a bit on um, all of those games or just a little bit on what he talks about related to them. I was familiar with almost all of them. Um, Go, you maybe have seen it, it's with black and white stones, I think, originated in China, but um, popular all over the world, and actually a quite complex game. That one I didn't know very well. And Bridge, I'd heard of uh, a lot, and I had never played Bridge itself, but there are many variants of it, I think, hearts, spades, or uh, Iranians, we have Hook, is actually similar to the game of bridge where there can be a trump suit uh, and then you try to win hands along with your your partner so to begin with he uh, talks about games in general first of all what is a game and why do we play games um, and there's one definition that he derives from um, someone else's definition i believe it was from bernard suits but he 
tries to put in a more succinct way a definition that he gave and ends up with saying a game is the voluntary attempt to overcome unnecessary obstacles the voluntary attempt to overcome unnecessary obstacles so essentially those unnecessary obstacles are like the rules of the game or the limits of the game something that came to my mind is for example playing soccer um, you can't use your hands that's in one way a limit of the game but that creates the challenge of it and the beauty of it in that way as well um, and, and you know sometimes we think of games as something meaningless or as something to do with extra time or as a waste of time but he shares some philosophers insights that this might not be the case that games aren't just something extra or on the side they might be actually important and vital to life and that even uh, archaeologists have found evidence of games or what seems like games dating back thousands of years in human civilization so it seems to serve some kind of a function or purpose he didn't talk about it in this book but you also see animals playing games for example you see little lion cubs play fighting with each other right and they're they're playing but we can understand that it's not just play for play's sake it does seem to also serve the function of helping them prepare for things they might have to do as they get older hunting or protecting themselves and things of that nature he does pre present that idea that games can be a type of practice for things that um, we have to do in real life so we can imagine hunters not having that many opportunities to engage in the activity if they only do it when they hunt so it could be good to practice or and to facilitate that to create a game that then we enjoy playing but that also helps us get better at something that might have some meaning so uh, there's some in you know conversation in the beginning of the book looking at the the history of games or why we even play games and uh, philosophers are cited and their different perspectives on it then he gets into these seven games which in a way he says increase in complexity um, beginning with checkers which although uh, my understanding of checkers was seeing it very basic uh, but it is quite complex he shares how it was not so easy to be solved or to be figured out but it was eventually figured out in one of the first ones that was and so in, in each chapter you get introduced to um, some characters from the computer world or the computer side of things who helped develop the computer programs that got better at the games and eventually at sometimes even perfected the games and also some of the key figures in the history uh, key players who were very talented and so you get to introduce to these individuals throughout the chapter so um, there is uh, the the chapter on checkers made me realize it was more complex than I thought but still even in the way he presents it the more basic of these seven games next was chess which um, we often think of as as he even says a as a sign of intelligence how intelligent you are you could be measured that by chess in some rudimentary way but it's really a sign of uh, intelligence and as i mentioned he talks often about the history of the games and so he shares how chess uh, the best theories place chess's origins in india around 1500 years ago so 1500 years ago and what i thought was interesting looking at how we call the game in persian uh, he said where it, is, it was called chaturanga which 
to me sounds likely to be the basis of we, where we get Shatranj from, chess in Farsi, so Chaturanga. Um, likely that's that would be my guess of where we get that from. And that he says it was possibly a, a miniaturized military exercise. So people have said that before, that chess is in a way a form of a uh, military type of exhibition played out through these pieces where you can also practice potential military theory or at least uh, use a game that is similar to it. And so maybe many of you know the history of the um, scientific or the, the computer versions of chess and how that played out because it was a very famous scene, I think it was in the late 90s, I, I I thought I had the date marked out, but I'll try to find it, uh, where Garry Kasparov, who at the time was likely the best chess player of all time, not just the best chess player then, now he um, likely has been surpassed by Magnus Carlsen. But at that time, he was considered the best of all time. And in 1996, I believe it was, yes, in 1996, he actually beat the, the computer four games to two. Uh, the, it was called Deep Blue was the name of the computer program. But then in 1997, there was a rematch, again, a best of six. And actually, this time, the computer won 3.5 games to 2.5 games. So still very close, but this was a big deal. And people were shocked. He himself was, you know, he, he shares in the book these different scenes and images of him being quite distraught at losing to the computer, that he was in shock about that. And so there's mixed feelings, and we see this in various chapters in the book where the machines uh, beat the humans, but of course the humans who make those machines, they're happy, but how they celebrate is kind of mixed. It, you know, there's this idea of it, um, the computers beating us and are becoming be better than us. And you see that in later games that I'll describe as well. Um, and there's uh, mixed feelings that come up, and I actually think I'll later on in the show touch on some thoughts about what comes up for us when we see the machines beating the humans, even though, again, the machines are made by humans, but in some ways can surpass what humans are able to do. Uh, the next game was Go, which, as I mentioned, I've seen before and heard about that it was this very complex game, but I didn't know much about it. And you've maybe seen it. It's played on a board with ma many different nodes, kind of these intersections of lines, with these black and white stones. And so in a way it could seem more simple than chess because there's really only one uh, piece at each. You have either a black stone or a white stone depending on which color you are and you, you play only those stones. Uh, and really you can only do one move which is place a stone at a time. Uh, but it's a game of uh, you know territories and planning and trying to bring things together and quite complex and actually because of the different moves you can make at a given time far more complex than chess especially more complex when you consider how many possible moves there are and then when you're trying to let's say create a computer program how many moves you would have to consider in order to be able to consider all of the possible moves and so uh, he describes the story and the history of developing ai that could play this game and master this game of go and how it challenges this the world champion at this time and this happened just a few years ago lisa dull and i saw the documentary on this about alpha go i thought it was quite interesting um, if you're interested in these types of things of games and seeing the development of ai competing against humans 
And so that was a, uh, you know, quite interesting. I read about it here and then when I saw um, the actual videos and images, uh, as I was mentioning, the same theme of this grandmaster, great player who was considered by far the best player in the world coming up against the, the computer program and people thought there was no way most people that the, that the computer program stood a chance, but it did beat him. I believe it was four games to one, and people were really shocked, including himself. He was really distraught. The, Lee Sadol, who was this world champion, he was really surprised. You saw him interviewed after every match, very humble and very generous in his words, but you could also tell it, it was hard for him uh, not to win, and he was shocked. He didn't think it would be possible that he would not win and be able to defeat the machine. And so people also had mixed emotions. You would see these commentators shocked. They were exacerbated. You know, how is this possible? How is it possible that the machine is beating this man? Um, what you also saw was that at times the machine made some moves that were very uncharacteristic or unlike what we would expect a human player to do. And it did make some mistakes in some of the games, but there was one move in particular that was very surprising, shocking to um, Lisa Dahl during the game and also commentators were very surprised and not sure if it was a mistake, but it turned out to be this quite beautiful move that was um, seeing things far ahead that ended up contributing to the machine uh, AlphaGo winning um, that game. So uh, for me, that was interesting, made me more familiar with this game of Go, which I did not know much about. Um, next, he actually describes going from Go to Backgammon, which is a game many Iranians are also familiar with. Um, now, this game introduces another element related to games and life, which is chance, because you do have the role of the dice. In chess, everything is controlled. You have the pieces, and it's just what moves you make and what moves your opponent makes. But in backgammon, um, the dice can play a considerable role in who, uh, how the luck plays out, that in the short run, you can get a good roll of the dice and end up winning, even if you're playing against a more skilled player. So he talks about that and how this introduces now um, uh, the element of chance, which uh, changes things up and, of course, can affect who wins and who loses. But in the long run, usually the better player will still win. So we go from an, a game of that includes chance to one that includes chance, but also concealed information, which is poker. So in poker, not only is there some chance what cards come out, but there's also this added piece of incomplete information, meaning that I don't know the cards that you hold and you don't know the cards that I hold, which makes it even more challenging in a different type of way, which can also, um, as he describes, make it something that uh, makes it more similar to life where we don't always, uh, we can't know everything that our opponent or that the other person is is experiencing or holding or the information that they know. Um, so he talks about how there's computer programs trying to figure out poker and the complexities that that includes because of this incomplete information. And so um, that and he also describes his own experience going into uh, a poker tournament at the World Series of Poker, um, which is the big event that happens in Las Vegas every year. Next game is Scrabble, which is a game that includes now letters to make words and the complexity of that is quite fascinating as well when you think of how many possible words there are in these master players who essentially learn every word that is a two-letter word three-letter word four-letter all the way up to 
eight and even nine if they have to make those kinds of combinations. And uh, we see um, the computer programs trying to compete and make themselves uh, able to hold their own when it comes to uh, the game of Scrabble. But not only does it include words, he shares how um, it includes this element of uh, planning and thinking ahead where you sometimes have to think of what's not just the best move now, but what's the best move to do now to also prepare for my future? Because sometimes you want to hold on to certain letters because they might become more valuable later on or help you make a longer word, uh, a bingo word later on, which you would want to do. And the last game he includes is Bridge, which, as I mentioned, I did not know. I knew it was similar to the game that Iranians play called Hook, which it is. Um, it actually resembles a variation of Hook that my my family plays. Other people I've heard of Rook, or also we call it Hook MTZ, where MTZ means kind of like points. So it's a game that includes bidding. Um, so in the traditional, if you've played Hook the regular way, you just get the cards, and one person gets to pick what's the trump suit, the Hook suit for that game based on their first five cards. But in games like Rook or Hook MTZ, you actually bid. And that bidding process um, then chooses not just the suit that will be Trump, but also um, includes an element of the score or the way that scoring will take place. Because whatever you bid, you have to then try to get that amount of points. And so Bridge has a similar um, way of bidding involved, although it's a little bit different. I won't get into all those intricacies, but it has a similar form of that bidding process and picking suits. There also is the possibility where you can say no Trump, meaning that none of the suits will be Trump and play the game that way. Uh, I didn't actually know the way it's played is that whoever is gets the hand, as we would say in our versions, uh, makes the highest bid. They're called a declarer. And then their partner, so it's a two-on-two game, um, their partner, their hand is put face up, and that declarer plays both their hand and the other person's hand. So it's a little bit different uh, variation from... Um, the traditional types of game like Hook that we play, where it has that element to it. But he, he shares that this game has um, also elements of empathy in it, where you have to kind of think about what your partner is thinking or feeling, and it has a whole culture of its own. But it was interesting to see um, this exploration of a game I didn't quite know. He does a good job of describing them briefly. Just for myself, I, I watched some short videos understanding the game a little bit better, even seeing some of what he shares about these cheating uh, scandals that have come about in the game of Bridge, which was also interesting. So, you know, that's in some ways the book itself. I will share in the next segment thoughts on this idea of when we're looking at man versus machine and these different feelings that it can bring up for us and try to understand what makes us um, feel good or bad about that or even scared about that uh, and how some of my thoughts on that as well. But the book was um, Seven Games by Oliver Roeder. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment, I was talking about the book Seven Games by Oliver Roeder. And as I mentioned, uh, in each chapter, he shares the history of the games, uh, what the game is or the rules, some of the masters of the game, and then also the development of AI types of programs and technologies to play the game and then play against humans and then the best humans. And 
as I mentioned also in the previous segment, this can bring up a lot of feelings for people as they hear or when they experience this or see the machines winning. And it feels like man versus machine. But also, as I said, it's really um, man versus man in some ways because the it's humans making these machines, developing these programs. And the ways, ways that these programs are developed are a few related ones and he gets into that history too in each chapter and the the different types of computer scientists and other players who help develop the technology um, sometimes in the earlier versions people were just inputting information into computer programs of the different types of games and to try to help it figure out some rules that way we've seen more more recently um, what we might call like neural networks and different types of AI technology where uh, sometimes things are being inputted, but often it's just having the the machines, the technology, the, the computer programs play the game repeatedly, sometimes against itself, and then learning patterns through that. So it's just repeatedly playing the game to see what works and what doesn't work. And because it could do it at an incredibly fast speed, sometimes you'll see you know, the game is already played, uh, you know, or the computer programs played millions of games within a short period of time because they can just do it very, very fast. And with our uh, expanded computing power, that is possible. So we saw that uh, it playing out throughout these developments of these technologies. Sometimes the just the technology was not quite there to allow for the machines to learn as quickly. But that has just gotten faster, and we know that will only get faster and better over time our ability to um, create computing power and also these programs will only get better and better over time and so it was interesting seeing that almost at every turn people would doubt that the machine would be able to win and of course at certain times it didn't but there was this sense and maybe it's it's probably many different things including human exceptionalism uh, again it is machines made by humans but still the sense that the human could that the machine could never outthink the human it's always going to be a few steps behind um and i think that's strange i mean it's you know in hindsight things can be very clear but there was this sense that often the machines would never be able to play uh, these games or be able to master them because it involves something so human now we do still see that the best ai still in a lot of ways can't do what the human brain and human beings do quite easily and simply so there still is many things that we can do that the machines can't do yet and that they can't capture as well as um, we can but when it comes to things that involve computing power and making decisions we're seeing that we, we can uh, the machines can learn how to do those things quite well so it is definitely hindsight. I wasn't there during those times or making predictions back then. But to me, it seems obvious that the machines will be able to figure out ways of uh, beating humans. Now, sometimes this made people say, well, what's the point uh, of playing? You know, even there are some of those reactions to people that if the machines can play better than humans, why should people play? And now sometimes this does affect the games because people can consult these computer programs uh, and then it'll give them the best uh, option or the best move and of course that would be unfair if it's human versus human and someone uses this computer element during 
the game. And so you do see actually there is, um, I, I know there's chess controversies, for example, where there was a suspicion that someone was getting messages of what what moves to make, which would be coming from one of these types of programs that has learned to play optimally. And that would be unfair if it's um, human versus human. But I think when most people are playing, you know, most of us, of course, are not going to play a game at a um, the highest level possible or become the best player in the world. We enjoy the process of the game. We enjoy learning about the game and getting better at the game and that experience of it personally. Just like if you learn how to play guitar, it's not that, okay, if a machine can play perfectly, I never want to learn how to play or you know, many people are going to play better than you no matter how long you play. You don't play to be only the best and that's the only reason to play. You play because you enjoy the process and it's meaningful to you. Um, it's just, you know, I was thinking of other examples. You know, this mental side, I think we we have a certain attachment to it. It brings up the sense that the machines shouldn't be able to do what we do. But in other ways, we have no problems with this. You know, if a machine lifts a thousand pounds of equipment and moves it, we don't think, oh, no, the machine is stronger than any human. And that that makes us upset or sad. We're actually quite happy about that, that we make machines that can make our lives easier in that way and make us allow us to do things that we no way could do without the machines. If we had to lift it all or move it all by hand and human force, that wouldn't be possible. So I think it's interesting how maybe also because it happened so long ago, but the fact that we make machines and devices that can do much more physically than a human can doesn't seem to bother us as much as when the machines can play some of these games that we thought were a very human thing or only a human thing. That seems to um, bother us more or be more upsetting, I think, because it feels like a more purely human thing. You know, we also have used animals throughout history to, and still do, to do some of the physical labor and force for us. And we also know there's animals that are um, much more physically gifted in us in so many ways from birds and other animals that can fly to just animals that are much stronger than us or faster than us. And sometimes we might have some reaction to that, but not much. But I think there's something in the realm of things that feel human or that make us unique that we then can feel a bit different about when we find out a machine can do that same thing or might even do it better than any human can. And that's why, as I was saying, people's reactions to seeing uh, the machines winning, he shares, and I, I went and found the image online when Gary Kasparov seems to be losing in that decisive match to Deep Blue in 1997. Um, there's this just a whole range of human emotions uh, that's captured in one picture of people who are watching in the, I think they're in an adjacent room or in the room where the match is happening, just some just shocked or horror, just these very intense feelings that they are going through. Uh, the sense that the machine is beating the human makes us feel a little bit uneasy. And of course, it could also bring up these fears of machines taking over the world and those other fears that people have with AI. And um, I have some thoughts on it, but I also am not informed enough or knowledgeable enough to really uh, give a clear assessment. Also, you know, any of these things, it's, it's speculative, but we do see... Um, warning signs from people who are knowledgeable in the fields of 
uh, AI and, and these types of technologies that say we have to be careful that we can't think it's impossible for these things hap to happen, for the machines to take over or for something like that to happen. And I think just recently in their other meetings like this, I saw something about a meeting about um, AI security or about people coming together to try to make uh, safety precautions going forward. And I think this makes sense. It, to me, it's similar to things like the development of the atomic bomb, where uh, the science was was going forward, but there has to also be a one, a even just a scientifically grounded um, precaution about what can happen with this science that we are developing, but also morally being aware that we have to be uh, careful of what we produce and what happens that ha that has to be also moving forward, a moral aspect of it. And so I think the atomic bomb very clearly demonstrated this, that uh, we created these weapons that then could destroy the planet many times over. And so if they were gotten into the wrong hands or uh, the wrong situations came about, it could have led to the end of humanity and still could. We still have that capability. So I think there's an understanding of this fear of development of technology or this caution that it's not just, well, if we can make an advancement, make that inva that advancement and don't worry about it. We do have to be mindful of that. Um, I think in these more types of intellectual realms, it brings up some sense of, I think maybe taking down our human exceptionalism this way that we think, okay, chess is something that a machine can never play or ever do. But then when it does, it, it does take away another way that we might feel special or, or unique, but maybe we don't need that. And so in the, the last segment of what I'm going to discuss is one aspect of what comes up when we're looking at these humans versus human versus machine type of interactions. And that is the sense that um, there's something of human intuition. That's what you saw somebody's coming up in the book. Know this, you know, chess or go involves some level of human intuition, and that can never be captured by the machine because that's something, uh, you know, it's an art or it's creative, and that would not be possible. But I'll, I'll share some of my thoughts that I don't think that's that black and white um, about this uh, after the break. So we'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the previous segment, I was talking about some of our emotional responses or reactions to seeing machines beating humans, uh, especially in games that involved involve intellect or um, what we think of as intelligence and how that can make us feel different than seeing humans that are, or machines, let's say they're physically stronger or think, doing things that uh, humans can't do physically, that it seems to affect us more. And as I mentioned uh, something that comes up when people have these discussions or thoughts or predictions is that, no, the machines won't be able to win at these games or figure out these games because they involve some amount of human intuition. And, you know, this to take a step back from that, it reminds you of how we tend to feel about things or think about things that we can't quite understand. And it seems to have some kind of a mystical... Uh, reason for it, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's something mystical or supernatural. It just means that we don't understand it yet. So many thousands of years ago, people might have thought, okay, the, the planets are in these glass cages or 
tubes and God is moving them around by hand, uh, you know, or by, you know, his force, that's how the planets are moving. And it seemed like some act of God or something mystical. And then we realized, okay, now we understand more about, you know, the different dimensions and of, of gravity and the gravitational pull and what these, um, these lights we would see in the sky, what they are. And so we understand it better. So it doesn't have to be something supernatural. We have some understanding of the laws and rules that underlie what's going on there. It's not something that has to be supernatural. Similarly, and sometimes people don't like this. They feel like that we we do this. It's reductionistic, and it takes away the the the, the specialness of it. And some people might say the same thing about love. Let's say if we look at love and then understand, okay, this is what happens when someone feels love in the brain, and the here oxytocin is released, and this happens, and that is now how we understand um, love. Now, of course, a few things could be said about that. One is, to me, it doesn't take away the specialness of it or make it less good. Um, but also just because we can understand it doesn't mean that the experience of it is not something special or that that explains the experience of it. It might explain what happens when someone is experiencing it, but your own experience of love or some feeling beauty or whatever it might be is not in any way reduced. Uh, I remember in my anthropology class, our professor explaining you know, what can make things look cute and baby-like? Even he had an example of like a plane and it was like a toy plane that was made to look like a baby. And well, the head was bigger than it's supposed to be in certain aspects of the head. And that's why you automatically thought of it as uh, a baby. And also this is reasons why we, when we see something that looks like a baby, we think it's cute and we want to take care of it. But to me, that doesn't make a baby any less cute or my experience of seeing a cute baby not interesting because I can think, oh, what makes the baby cuter to me is because their eyes are so big compared to the rest of their face and their head is bigger than their body. Those things might be true, but to me, the experience of a, a cute baby does not disappear. Um, but going back to the sense that we, when we don't understand something, it seems supernatural and something so special, but that when we understand it, then we see that it wasn't supernatural. We just didn't understand what it was. And so human do intuition has this same quality, both in a, a general sense, but also individually. When we talk about intuition, what we usually mean is that I had what we might call a gut feeling, or um, I, I think a certain way or feel a certain way, if you want to say it that way, but I can't tell you exactly why. So in this sense, I don't understand myself yet about why I feel a certain way. I can't give you that explanation. So for example, in a different type of way, let's say you walk into some building and you say, I don't like this place. I don't like this place. I don't know why. And then you get told by your parents that, oh, you know what? When you were 12, um, this is where we had your uncle's funeral. Um, and, and you know, it, yeah, you were very sad that day and we were all crying and all this thing. And now you realize like, oh, that's why I didn't like this place. You couldn't understand why you had this feeling and we actually can get why. It doesn't mean it's a bad place or something bad is going to happen now, but that's why you had that bad feeling there. And so uh, that was kind of a dark example or way of looking at one way that intuition can show up. But this is what is happening with our, our intuition. And it's often that we have many experiences 
that might allow for us to then encode something that we are not aware of. There's that famous example during the Cold War, where I believe was a um, from the Russian side, that they saw something appear on their radar that uh, triggered what would have to then be an atomic bomb being launched. But the person said, it doesn't feel like it's it's enemy ships for some reason or enemy whatever it was and he turned out to be right and he he wasn't sure why it was something of intuition and later they could figure out that the way it was blinking or i forgot forgot exactly what it was it was different than when uh it would actually be an enemy um plane or bombs that were were coming there was something that he didn't even realize he knew so that's how our intuition works to me it's it feels very special magical it seems really special and it i think it is something quite remarkable but it doesn't mean it's something supernatural you know this feeling that it's coming out of thin air doesn't mean it's actually coming out of thin air it just means i don't know why i'm having this um this uh this reaction or this feeling or this thought and so in some of these games like chess and go Um, they'll talk about how some of the great players, sometimes it's a feeling that they, they pick their next move. This move feels right. Or often what comes up for, let's say chess is I've heard, they'll say the feeling comes up and then they'll kind of, you know, now with their critical thinking, uh, double check the move and go several moves ahead as far as they can to see if the move makes sense. And sometimes really it is this really great move that came to them as this flash of insight, this type of intuition. Um, but now later on, they can understand why, but in that moment, they didn't know how that move came to them. And creativity actually has a similar feel to that. I might leave that aside because it might be different. I have to think about that a bit more. Um, That was itself a flash of insight. That's really funny. Um, But so, you know, creativity has that same sense of something comes to you and you don't know exactly why or how. Um, And it could feel like, you know, there's people think amused or has to come something, you know, supernatural. I don't actually think it is. I think, you know, our creativity comes from within. It's just something that we are not aware of because our brain is storing so much that we can't even know that in that moment, something synthesized and came out um, all at once, and, and there it was. But so similarly in these games, um, sometimes these grandmasters have this incredible uh, ability of intuition that can guide them to becoming great players. This also reminds me of Daniel Kahneman's classic book, Thinking Fast and Slow, and in some ways, maybe it's oversimplification, but there's definitely something meaningful there, These you know, because we don't actually have these two discrete distinct systems of thinking but it definitely um, is demonstrating something quite powerful the sense that we have this you know type one thinking where just automatic feeling more feeling type thinking what I'm also describing as intuition and then also the slower type of thinking which is when we critically think and evaluate and use what you might think our, our rational mind or the logic to evaluate things and it's not that one is good and one other one is bad they both have great value and serve us and actually uh, the more we can integrate and incorporate both of them the better we we do um, so when i would hear this uh, you know see this in the book that oh no there's human intuition so the machines can never figure that out um i i didn't think you know that would hold true because i don't think that the intuition is coming from some magical place that can't be captured we just might not understand 
what it is. And so if the machines are fed enough, you know, instances and enough data, they'll find these themes. And as I was saying in that game of Go, it had what we might consider um, a moment of intuition, even the way people described it. This was a beautiful, it was like a kind of like a piece of a work of art, this creativity that this move, I think it was move 37 in this game had. Um, that was something magical and beautiful because it then came together why that move, which looked possibly very wrong or like a mistake, was actually quite powerful and helpful in winning the game. It seems mystical, but again, I don't think most of us would think the, the machine is having something mystical or has some kind of machine god that is giving it this special moment, but it was something that it synthesized something out of all the data and information it had that even maybe the machine hadn't thought of before, just like we might have that experience where we have this insight of creativity that we we haven't thought of before uh, until we were put in that moment. This, by the way, is I think why it's so important to put ourselves in experiences, um, whatever they might be, because that's when we have these moments of intuition. If you're not there, you know, if you're not listening to the music, you don't know what kind of dance you're going to do. You can't imagine the dance in your head. Play the music and see how you dance. Let your body move and your body will probably surprise you. But if you just in your head try to dance and think, how would I dance to a song? You won't be able to do it. The music and then your body will help guide you there. And so similarly in these types of games, or if you even have ideas for myself on this show, sometimes I talk things through. You've heard it happen a few times today. And because I'm talking to the idea, the new idea comes to me. But if I didn't let myself talk and think things through, I wouldn't get there. So uh, in these games, the same thing happens. A, a grandmaster approaches a board that maybe they've never even seen before quite like this. And they can then have this moment of intuition that that will say, do this. And then they check in and see, wow, that's actually a really good move. But it wasn't until they put themselves in that situation that that move would come to them. And so I don't think uh, we, we should expect the machines can't do that, that if they can have all that computing power and speed and experience and learning, that they wouldn't find these patterns. Now, not only that, as he does explain, sometimes uh, we inform the machines, but the machines inform us. As I was saying with intuition and these types of things, we sometimes don't know why we do the things we do. We might not quite understand it. And because of that, we think it's something mystical, but sometimes um, through experience or seeing what's actually going on, we can understand why that was uh, good and why that came to us. And so the machines can also help us understand our own thinking a bit more. Why might humans think this way? Or how did we come to these types of thoughts or conclusions or, or decisions? So to me, it doesn't um, make it any less special human intuition if we think that it's just something happening in the brain. To me, it's something happening in the brain, not something that's happening externally. I can't obviously know for sure. I do believe there's more than meets the eye and meets our understanding that we definitely don't know or can't fully understand our world. But to me, looking at it from the most a simple explanation that I think is still um, enough of an explanation, uh, sufficient explanation, I would say that our brains can, can do this, that human intuition doesn't have to be coming from outside, from anything that is something else. It could be coming from within us. So if we quit, create these machines and this type of AI to to think these problems through, to get that information and data, to me, it would make sense that it would also be able to 
um, figure things out and possibly have these new types of intuition as well. So uh, just some thoughts on that. I think it's uh, an interesting topic when we first look at these machines and AI and how it is changing and will definitely continue to change our world and the world that we live in, but also in trying to understand how we humans think and we're still trying to figure out that. Of course, it's this funny, interesting problem where the human brain is trying to understand the human brain so we can understand biases and limitations might come up, but we're still trying to understand better how it is that we think and think the ways that we do. Uh, but I do uh, you know, recommend this book if you like games in general, which I do, most humans do. I think he does a great job of explaining the games and the history. So that, again, the book that started today's conversation was Seven Games by Oliver Roeder, Seven Games, A Human History. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Ghazale here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Olakwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi. <laughs>